Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to our fourth presentation of Three Angels, One Message, where we've been taking a kind of a deep dive into one collection of passages from Revelation and chapter 14. We started first with looking at the gospel and how it was presented in the book of Revelation. Then we moved to the first angel, which was a call back to faithful worship of the Creator God. Then we looked at the fall of confusion uh, that was embodied in old time, the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages, then at Babylon, then finally now spiritual Babylon. So you would see religious confusion, political confusion, social confusion, all leading towards uh, getting people really away from being grounded in Jesus. And so what, what we saw, though, from that second angel is that the confusion wouldn't last forever. The confusion would fall. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, says that second angel. And we, we studied a couple of key points as to how we could prepare ourselves against the confusion, if you will, testing things by the Word of God, prayerfully considering if what you're hearing lines up with what you're studying, etc., etc., Tonight we're going to pick up with our third and our final angel. It's not our final message, but it is our final angel. Angel 3, Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. This is a uh, long collection of slides. It's only slightly longer than we have been, but we are trying to get through them in a reasonable time. So before we dive in, let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you for being our surety and our stability in this world of chaos and confusion. So now we pray that as we open up uh, your word, as we study this passage again, this important passage, I pray that you would be present, help us to understand, help us to apply what we learn, not only those of us here, but also those that are watching online. We pray for them as well. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, let's ask the question, what is the mark of the beast? This is an oft-talked-about, oft-debated, sometimes it gets pretty fantastical when anyone brings up this particular topic. Maybe you've heard that the mark of the beast is a tattoo, a brand, or a mark on the skin. Some people like to think of it maybe like the, the tattoos that the Jews got during the Holocaust. That that practice will be reinstituted again, but this time for Christians. You get a tattoo on your arm, get a tattoo on your head, and that's how they will tell if you are uh, have the mark of the beast. Have you heard of that? Well, have you heard this one maybe, that the mark of the beast is the number 666, uh, that uh, you should avoid it if you go to Walmart and you ring up your groceries and they come to $6.66, we'll put on an extra package of gum. If you go to the DMV and you get the license plate where those three numbers say 666, change it out for something else. Uh, that actually did happen in the state of Arkansas when I was growing up. It happened to be that time when the number came up in the sequence. That was the most requested replacement play. Uh, and no one wanted it. Uh, but you could see a few of them driving around because some people saw that just the number itself uh, is not associated or is not the mark of the beast. I've even heard it relatively more fantastical with regards to this number. If you have ever seen the energy drink Monster, have you seen that can? You've seen where it's got the three claw marks that go down the front of it. That's their trademark. 
Well, I have heard it proposed that because those three claw marks look like the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, then the monster can is associated with the mark of the beast. So don't drink that. They're probably not healthy for you. They have nothing to do with the mark of the beast. I can assure you. What about this? A universal ID card. Uh, You need to not only have your driver's license, but everybody also needs to have uh, a secondary ID card that then is, is used to enter buildings or used to get across state lines or used to... Have you heard maybe something along those lines? Or this, this one is really popular, a microchip implanted under the skin. Uh, maybe in your palm or something like that. This is actually being practiced right now. There are at least two different kinds of microchips that humans get implanted just under their skin, one for medical purposes. This was introduced shortly after COVID, where you could have the microchip just under the skin. All of your important and necessary medical data was stored on that microchip. So if you went to the ER, if you were unconscious, if you just wanted to streamline a doctor's visit, they could scan your microchip, they would pull up your age, your weight, they would tell them, you know, if you've got any uh, cancers in your family histories, things like that. Uh, That's already being put into practice. There is also a microchip that is being used where you can uh, have it connected to all of your financial payment accounts, if you will. So it works like if you take your credit card and you tap and go, well, and they also have a microchip that you can have implanted where you just give a high five to the, to the payment machine and off you go. It's, it's charged right to your Visa account. That is there, uh, but so far there is no association with a microchip and the mark of the beast. Well, some people even thought that the COVID vaccine itself was the mark of the beast. This, this gained a little bit of traction. It was, uh, it was kind of shot down about as quickly as it shot up, uh, and that's because really vaccines are not the mark of the beast. They can be very good for you. They, they are sometimes encouraged if it works for you, but with it being a new technology, with it being at the hands of, in many places, heavy-handed government responses, this, of course, led people to wonder about its, are there ulterior motives behind it? Eh, If you're a little bit more into conspiracies, one can perhaps uh, understand how you might go, I don't know about that. Well, I can assure you that the mark of the beast is not the COVID vaccine, or maybe it's something else. Maybe the mark of the beast is just something else. I've, I've, I've heard there's a whole lot of different theories out there, but these seem to be some of the most popular ones depending on where you look and what you read. What we need to remember before we continue is that the book of Revelation is a book heavy in cryptic symbols. We have strange beasts, we have trumpets, we have bowls, we have speaking angels, we have rainbows, and we have things like that. (coughs) The book of Revelation speaks of Jesus. It speaks of the gospel. It speaks of eternal truths written by a loving God to an end-time generation. And the book of Revelation speaks of worship. In fact, we studied worship as Revelation's greatest issue. I'm sorry. (coughs) In our second presentation. Why? 
This is going to be annoying, I can tell. <coughs> because the central issue in earth's final conflict has to do with worship. The conflict between Christ and Satan began in heaven over worship. It will come to its final climax over worship. So what should we be looking for with the mark of the beast? Well, first, let us briefly review to make sure we understand this vital point. The messages we've been studying are so important that they are pictured as being carried by three angels flying swiftly through the sky. We've devoted one whole presentation to the everlasting gospel, a defining quality about these angels. I'm not going to reread all of them. We have read them many times before. The first angel did cry out, though, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and the heart of it, worship him. Worship. Heaven's first appeal is to give our supreme allegiance and heartfelt worship to the Creator in light of heaven's judgment. In our last message, we studied that Babylon represents a confused, apostate religious system that has substituted falsehood for truth while aligning herself in unholy unions with world governments. She rejected the pure truths of the Bible. She preferred to mix truth with error so that the second angel's message announces that she has fallen from God's favor and we should not share in her confusion. In fact, there was a warning a couple of chapters later to come out of Babylon and then God calls you his people. Don't stay in confusion is the warning. Uh, note, one cannot, one cannot faithfully worship God if we have mixed truth with error. That's in the first and the second angel's message. It's got to be a pure worship or it's not faithful worship. It is something else. We've continued now with the first verse of this third angel. Let's read it. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. With this first verse, we see again that worship is at the forefront of the proclamation. The angel recognizes another entity that people can worship, the beast and its image. It warns against doing such a thing, though. You do not want to be found in the, with the group of people who worship the beast and its image. You don't want to be found there because it goes on to say that if you are, you also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So it is, is it clear that the heart of what we are studying is worship? Is that clear so far? Worship. Should we then be looking for the mark of the beast to be detached or unassociated from worship? No. We should see it closely connected to the thought, the idea of worship. So let's now turn our attention to its discovery. Before we can look to the mark, though, we need to look to the beast. The beast, Revelation 13, and before I go on, I want to say that this is, this particular presentation is rather large. I have done my best to condense it down into a singular, uh, into a singular presentation, 
but there's so much I couldn't get to. Uh, we are leaving out other very relevant sections of the Bible just because I can't make this 200 slides and three hours long. Uh, we don't want to do that to either you or me. Uh, so if there are other questions, if there is a, a greater interest in the extra material, uh, please see me or, or Kevin, Sarah, Anthony, Grace, even Janet has done this study with me on the side. We have other resources. Uh, contact us, DM us on Facebook. We can get the resources to you for greater study. So for tonight, we're going to go through uh, some things a little bit quicker than I would prefer, but we're going to do our best. Well, one, we have already touched on that in Bible prophecy, a beast equals a nation. You might also hear it phrased as a king or a kingdom or a nation. Uh, any one of those threes are interchangeable. Today, we really don't have a lot of kingdoms, uh, but we do have plenty of nations. And so that would be the equivalence if you read kingdom in the Bible. We will also see that this nation is a religious nation. Uh, the beast of Revelation 13 is a religious nation, and we know that because it blasphemes. If it were not religious, it could not blaspheme, in other words. How does it blaspheme? Well, Revelation 13.6 tells us this. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And then again in Revelation 17, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. You find the same nation depicted a couple of different ways, or at least two in Revelation. Revelation 13, it's depicted without the woman. Revelation 17, it has the woman. Both locations, the beast is blasphemous. That's the common thread that we're seeing. Since blasphemy is mentioned numerous times as one of the identifying features of the beast power, it must be significant. Let's discover how this term is used in other places in the New Testament. We've got to find, let the Bible interpret itself in other words. John 10.33, the Jews answered him, this is Jesus, they were accusing him of this. They said... <coughs> For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, here's the definition, being a man, make yourself God. They were accusing Jesus of being blasphemous because they said he was only a man who claimed to be God, and he couldn't do that. Well, was Jesus a blasphemer? Well, certainly not. Well, why not? Well, because when Jesus claimed it, it was true. If you or I claimed it, it would not be true. It would be blasphemous. But Jesus had that right. Jesus was a mortal being, but he still claimed the privileges, the prerogatives of God as an equal. Uh, that wasn't blasphemy for him, but for anyone else, it would be. That's one definition. Our second definition, in Luke 5.21, again, they were looking to accuse Jesus of this. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? And here's our definition, who can forgive sins but God alone? If you 
believe that you can forgive sins, then you are guilty of blasphemy. Because the Bible says that only God can forgive sins. But again, for Jesus, this was not. Because Jesus was as much God as he was man. So, to summarize, the two biblical examples of blasphemy are this. If any man pretends to be or claims to be God, and if any man claims the power to forgive sins. In Jesus' case, the accusations were unjust because he truly was and is God. He holds all the powers, all the prerogatives of God, including the right to forgive sins. So now let us discover what other entity violates these two principles of blasphemy. There really is only one that consistently does both. And that's the key. You might be able to find a couple of institutions, a couple of churches, a couple of individuals who perhaps are guilty of one or the other, um, but you usually don't find both at the same time in the same institution consistently and without interruption. I'm going to tell you up front that we are going to show that the Roman Catholic Church claims both of these things. They claim that the power of forgiveness or absolution first is their, is their first claim. It's vested in her priests by Christ himself. That's a, this is a rather big claim, um, but let's see. Quote from a very prominent Catholic author, quote, Seek where you will throughout heaven and earth, and you will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner who can free him from the chains of hell. And that extraordinary being is the priest, the Catholic priest. Well, we can ask this question. Who can forgive sins except God? They had already thought of this, the author. Was the question which the Pharisees sneeringly asked, who can forgive sins, is the questions which the Pharisees of the present day also ask, and I answer. There is a man on earth that can forgive sins, and that man is the Catholic priest. What did we just read from the Bible itself, though? It certainly doesn't align with this. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus that he could not do a thing, and they were acknowledging God as the only one who could. And yet this Catholic author uh, recognized in, uh, in men the very thing that defines blasphemy. Uh, that doesn't sound like ground that we should find ourselves on. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Uh, you need the mediator who is sinless because you are sinful. If, if the priest is the mediator between God and sinful humanity, then he would also need another mediator. In other words, they would find themselves in a cycle that they couldn't escape. One, a, a person who needs a defense attorney really shouldn't be defending someone else from breaking the law. Make sense? All the Catholic Church tries to thread that needle that just simply cannot be thread. Uh, there is, it is an official teaching 
of the Roman church that God dispenses the grace of forgiveness through the priest. Uh, Proof of this church's teaching of this doctrine is seen actually in a rather recent news, uh, semi-recent. This just actually re-emphasizes that fact. In March of 2020, when all the churches, mostly the churches globally, were closed down due to the pandemic, Catholics wondered, how can we then be forgiven of our sins? We can't go to our priest. Because inside of the Catholic Church, if you can't make it to confessional, you cannot have that sin forgiven. That's not hyperbole, that's literal. That's a part of their sacraments. So the Pope made this declaration that, well, actually a Vatican tribunal that deals with matters of conscience, including confession, stated this, that though absolution of sin is the usual means through which sins are forgiven by a priest, in times of, that's supposed to be great necessity, such as with the ongoing spread of COVID at the time, other solutions are needed. Uh, In other words, because this is such a big deal, we are going to give you a secondary option. We will bestow upon you a secondary option. What is that secondary option? Well, Pope Francis said that people who can't manage to go to confession as a result of being locked down can confess directly to God. In other words, they believe that your sins cannot be forgiven except by a priest, but the Pope can give you permission to go to God directly. Um, thank you, but I will take 1 John 1.19 at its word. If we confess our sins, he that is Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does the Bible say? Who do you go to for forgiveness of sins? Right to God. Does the Bible say that that must pass through a priest first? No. Who does it say is faithful and just in your forgiving? Jesus. There's no ifs, ands, or buts to this. This is about how faithful and just He is when we go to Him with our confessions. That speaks so much about His love and His grace, His kindness and His long-suffering towards us. Why would we put up another barrier between us and our Savior who loves us? Why would we do that? Especially contrary to what the Bible has said. And how far does he take the forgiving? Well, good news, he takes it all the way, cleansing us even from all of the unrighteousness. That's wonderful news, my friends. I'm so encouraged by that. No man, no priest, no pew warmer can do what Jesus will do when you go to him with your faults and your failings. Jesus will do it all for you. Well, so we've looked at the one example of how blasphemy, if any man claims the power to forgive sin, is present in the Roman Catholic Church. But we need to make sure that we only, or don't only leave it at the one. We have to have both. We have to have both of them, or it cannot be a true characteristic. So now let's look at this second example. If any man pretends to be or claims to be God, A somewhat lengthy quote, but bear with me. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man. 
but as it were, God and the vicar of God. Hence the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven, as king of earth, and of the lower regions. In other words, he, he also has the, the rulership, the authority over hell. That's what that would mean. The Pope is, as it were, God on earth, chief king of kings, to whom has been entrusted by the omnipotent God direction of the heavenly kingdom. This is an expansion over where Jesus says, you have the keys uh, to, to heaven and to hell. Whatever you say will be bound in heaven and whatever you don't permit will be. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but they have taken that to mean other, that, other than God will honor prayers of faith to you literally have authority in heaven, on earth, and on hell in place of God. That's the conclusion that they have drawn. Uh, this, is, uh, this is from Article 2 in Prompta Bibliotheca. Uh, this was written in 1772. Pope Leo XIII urged, quote, complete submission and obedience of will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. This was from the great encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII. The same proud pontiff, and he was a proud pontiff, he also claimed this, we the popes hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Uh, more evidence could be given. I, I would say these two are enough. Uh, you can find it. And in case you're wondering, uh, maybe these quotes are just super old, they haven't recanted them. The state hasn't, or the, the church hasn't reneged on them. They still wear the crowns. They still hold the titles today that they did in the 17, the 16, the 1400s. Uh, none of that has changed. It just carries on. In fact, they believe that it cannot change. Even when you have a heretical pope, that pope is still respected as carrying these titles. I don't know how you harmonize it, but they hold it. The Roman church certainly believes that the Pope stands in the place of God himself on earth. So let's look at these identifying characteristics. It's a nation that is religious. In other words, it's an unhealthy union of church and state. And we, we talked a little bit last week on how you can have a healthy union. Uh, you can have uh, Christian ideals supporting a uh, political movement for something good. And an example I like to use is abolition. Uh, you could use temperance movements, things like that. Uh, they they kind of went hand in hand at times. This would be an unhealthy union. We saw that it's blasphemous. If you read through the, the Bible, you will see that it's received its power from imperial or pagan Rome and that it would rule for a set time. Revelation 13, verses 4 and 5 say, They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. A dragon was, was a well-known symbol for imperial Rome, for pagan Rome, uh, it, it means other things in the Bible, but it is certainly this. 
Historically speaking, we need to do a little bit of math. When we are calculating time periods, because you notice we just saw a time period right here, 42 months. When calculating these time periods in the Bible, especially in prophecy, you have to do it a little different. It's not a one-to-one ratio in that one day equals one day. In the Bible, in prophecy, we call it a day-to-year principle means that for every day mentioned in the prophecy, we actually count in terms of years. These two references in Numbers 14.34 and in Ezekiel 4.6 give the principle, one to the Israelites and one to Ezekiel. And these, these were from the word of uh, the mouth of God himself. Uh, we're not taking it from Moses. We're not taking it from Ezekiel. God says, Here's the principle. One day, one year. In... So now let's look at this. 42 months. In ancient calendars, they did not have the uh, 30 or 31, 30, 31, 30. You know, they didn't count like that with your knuckles uh, because they didn't know that there were 360, what, five and a quarter days, they believe that there was a fixed 30-day month, a fixed 360 days. All the ancient calendars operated on this because it came, came from, I believe, Egypt or certainly Babylon, the ancient Babylonian empire. Uh, they like to work with good rounded numbers. So they had 30-day months. You just do the simple math. 30 days times 42 months is 1,260 days, prophetic days. So if you take that principle into account, that's years. That's all we're looking at. Uh, it, is, it is also described the, the same time period. It's described different ways elsewhere in the Bible, most notably Daniel chapter 7, where you will see it read, one, literally as the 1,260 days, but also as time, times, and the dividing of time. So that would be a time as a year. Times, being plural, would be two years. And the dividing of time, of course, would be half a year. Uh, so that comes up to three and a half years. Same thing. 1,260 days. Uh, again, lots of places we can go to to build our case for what we're making today. We just don't have time for all of it. Well, let's look at this. Historically, when Constantine moved the capital of Rome in AD 330 from Rome to Constantinople, it left a leadership vacuum in Rome. That vacuum was fairly left open until about AD 538, when Justinian, the Roman emperor, officially granted the Roman bishop the role of defender of the emperor's empire, the definer of heretics, and defender of the faith. Uh, this was uh, the, the Roman emperor basically said, I'm not there anyways, it's kind of nice in Constantinople, I've left the bishop in an unofficial capacity. Well, in this year they made it official. Uh, the scepter was handed over, the titles were bestowed, and now the bishop of Rome got to rule. The pope then filled this void, became not only a powerful religious leader, but also a political force to be reckoned with in Europe. The papacy, uh, and that's 
a little different than just the Catholic Church. The papacy is the Vatican, the city, the, the little city-state, because it is its own uh, nation, if you will. Uh, and it's the church. The Catholic Church and the Vatican make up the papacy. Uh, so the papacy exercised great influence from A.D. 538 for 1,260 years until the year 1798, when Napoleon's general, Berthier, took the Pope captive. Now, some people have said, yes, Pastor Aaron, that was not the first time that the Pope had been ca captured in history. That's true. Not the first time the Pope had been captured. Well, what does it, why does it matter? Well, because when the Pope was captured this time, it lasted. It really put an end to the high level of influence that the papacy exercised in Western Europe until that point. The church had already been a little on the decline, but then when that happened, it really went out of fashion. At other times when the Pope was captured, the church still kept influencing kings and monarchs and rulers and the like. Uh, even when the Pope was in a dungeon cell somewhere. Not this time. And this time, I believe, because God said when this date would roll around, then it would come the end of this long stretch of authority. When God says it, it's going to happen. Bertier and his army captured Pope Pius VI. They removed him from his throne the aged pontiff was hurried from prison to prison and at length confined in a fortress at the top of the Alps where he died in exile in 1799. This was an extremely serious blow to the papacy. But it wasn't fatal. Because it says that the beast was wounded as if it were dead. It's a very interesting wording that the Bible gives it because it doesn't say that the beast was wounded dead. It was as if, like a, like a cockroach. You ever stepped on a cockroach and off it goes again? You step on it again and off it goes again? Um, just, to be, just to be fair, I have family members who are Catholic. Uh, I, I, know, I have a lot of respect for many Catholics. Uh, there are some who are deeply faithful, and this is not an insult on them. The wound just didn't kill it, is what all we're trying to say. And why is that? Well, because Revelation 13 continues after the mortal wound was received by the first beast, another beast comes up. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in the presence, makes the earth, its inhabitants, worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. You can be terribly wounded and live. There are some incredible x-rays out there of, of railroad spikes through the skull, of, of people just, I mean, missing whole sections of bodies, and they should have bled out, and miraculously they were sustained, and so on. This mortal wound uh, carried the same result. Anyone looking on at the papacy in 1798 would have said it's done for. But the Bible tells us that that wound was going to heal. Well, it's not far-fetched to see how that wound has healed today. 
The Roman papacy is gaining in authority, power, and influence around the world. World leaders welcome the Pope as he travels around the world as an ambassador of the Church of Rome. In fact, the, the papacy is the only place that has, it's the only church that also has its own embassies that other world leaders then go to and send their own ambassadors. It's a church, don't forget. There is not another church around the world that has that. There is not another church as worldly famous as Billy Graham was. He could not go where the Pope goes and get the red carpet treatment. The tens of thousands of people that flock to the Pope in areas hostile to Christianity, the Pope goes and is welcomed with open arms. The only, it's the only religious leader that is like this. Uh, presidents seek the Pope's advice. Uh, it's incredible. He was invited to address a joint session of the U.S. Congress in a move that many political observers considered unprecedented. I don't remember how long ago that was. 2016, 2018, somewhere in that area, I believe. 2015, he did his rounds up in New England, ended up in Pennsylvania, and, uh, and then at Congress and, and so forth. Um, it was a big deal. Uh, I remember there was a lot of chatter about it, and then it was unprecedented when he talked to both chambers of Congress at the same time. Kings, political leaders, presidents visit him regularly at the Vatican, and they treat him as royalty when he visits other countries. There is not another religious leader that is welcomed like him. Not Joel Osteen, not the Dalai Lama, not anybody that is welcomed like the Pope. By all external appearances, the papacy seems to be softening its image to accommodate the spirit of our age. In fact, the current pope is called heretical by many of his followers because of this softening appearance. He's gotten a little softer on same-sex unions, a little softer on, on like out-of-wedlock babies, a little softer on who can be baptized, a little softer on these things that are historically hard lines inside of the Catholic Church. Uh, by all appearances, he seems actually like a pretty nice guy. Uh, he, he bends down and washes the feet of people that no one else would touch. Uh, some of it is, is okay. Uh, I think more people could follow that kind of example, but we have to be mindful. At a time when the world is looking for moral leadership, the Pope's star is rising rapidly. And those yearning for such leadership are right. Moral leadership is in short supply. The latest research on moral leadership finds that employees, managers, and executives believe that the need for moral leadership is more urgent than ever. Surveys reveal a deep lack of trust in institutions and governments. And in case you're wondering, over the last two years, it has dropped precipitously in the United States. The trust in institutions, the trust in governments, the trust in reporting uh, uh, 
avenues and, and other institutions like our news. No one trusts them in the United States, certainly not compared to 20 or 50 years ago. Uh, it's falling, but like we talked about, when there is a vacancy, people look for that hole to be filled. Millions of people are wondering, where is someone who is morally fit to lead the world? If you want to bring the world together today in a world fragmented by ethnic tensions and racisms, with governments and even allies that don't trust one another, where is a moral voice capable of bringing people together? In a world of instability and uncertainty, rising hunger and increasing poverty, economic and environmental disasters, it would be easy very easy if there were another global upheaving like we saw with COVID, perhaps a tactical nuke. That has actually been in the news recently. It would be very easy to see how someone like the pontiff of Rome could be the one that the world invites to bring everyone together. Because if you'll remember, or if you, if you weren't here and you can watch it on our The End to Confusion, one purpose to confusion in, in reference to how cults operate. They confuse their followers so then the leader can be chosen a little bit more certainly. When there's lots of confusion, people look for stability. When you have everybody seemingly failing you on who you can trust, and one person comes forward and says, you can trust me, I am morally upright, and everyone else goes, sure he is. It's very easy to add stability, if you will, to a world of confusion. It's not a far-fetched kind of uh, way to kind of piece some of these things together. We just talked on this. Human nature looks for stability from confusion. And the Pope has already revered the world over by leaders of every nation and religion. It's not hard to see how he could rise to the top and everyone look to him as a moral guide, a moral fixed point, if you will, in a world of confusion. But it doesn't, this doesn't answer one question, one question that we need to ask, because remember, we are talking about the mark of the beast. Well, what vehicle does the, could the devil use or what he might suggest to unify society. We have to ask this. Have you ever wondered what he might use? Well, history often repeats itself. We've mentioned him once before. Let's return just for a moment to the days of Constantine. Uh, Constantine was in charge about the time that Rome was falling apart. Uh, Germanic tribes on their, on their shores financial instability, the, the money was just kind of going around. They weren't conquering. People were just staying at home and debating things in cycles. Rome really just kind of fell. It really wasn't conquered. So in an attempt to save his empire, Constantine turned to religion. He found something. The authority of the church combined with the power of the state, it became the very instrument that Constantine was searching for. People find peace and stability in faith. And so he united the two. 
Christians had a special reverence for Sunday since Christ rose from the dead on that day. Christians in Constantine's uh, time kept both the Sabbath and, the, and Sunday. Uh, one in, because it's in the Bible, and the other one because Christ rose on that day. They kind of kept them both. The pagans of Constantine's time were often sun worshipers. The continual strengthening of the sanctity of Sunday in the 4th century, it was a calculated political and religious move to save the empire at a time of crisis. If you've got one group yelling at the other, and that group accusing this group, well, if you find common ground that the two of them can stand on, and then, and then the emperor comes out and says, here's your common ground, stop fighting, that lends itself to stability. Constantine was looking for that. He wanted his empire united, and the Roman church wanted it converted. That's precisely why Constantine passed the first Sunday law. The church reinforced its decree in church councils by making Sunday the sacred day of worship. We read this. Arthur Weigel is a, is a renowned historian. He says this, The church made a sacred day of Sunday, largely because it was the weekly festival of the sun. It was a definite Christian policy to take over the pagan festivals endeared to the people by tradition and give them Christian significance. Uh, it wasn't only done for the days of worship. It was also done for the idols that they worshipped. Um, I believe Saturn and Peter are the exact same idols. St. Peter, if you look in Catholic Church. I believe it's... I it might, it might be Mars and Peter. That would make a little bit more sense than Zeus and, and John or something like that. Uh, you can find uh, the same pagan idols in one temple with the idols that represent supposed saints in the Catholic Church. Exact same idols. We see this with other holidays as well, All Saints Day and so on. A common day of worship does have the potential to unite a divided world. And we're certainly living in a divided world, if you will. As we have emphasized to start off our presentation tonight, the central issue of Earth's final conflict will be worship. The issue of the mark of the beast revolves around worship, but it also focuses on the issue of authority, who's and how? Because that's what we have to get to. We have to ask a couple of these questions. Whose authority and how does the mark of the beast revolve around worship? Well, one, you start with something that we know. The Sabbath is the eternal symbol of our rest in Jesus Christ. We looked at that. We studied it. The seventh day of the week is at the heart of how we worship God. From creation to Exodus to Isaiah to, to the Gospels, to the book of Acts, to the, the epistle to the Hebrews, to Revelation. The Sabbath is that focal point for worship uh, in terms of how we worship God. We've already been called back to this faithful worship by the first angel, and with the Sabbath's connection to creation, we acknowledge God's authority in our lives. Uh, because by 
recognizing the connection between Sabbath and creation, we recognize God's authority as our creator. That's the connection. The biblical Sabbath means that we rest in him because of what he has done in creating and redeeming us. We can't make ourselves. We can't save ourselves. He did it. Sabbath tells us that. We observe the Sabbath to acknowledge his creatorship and sovereignty in our lives. We keep the seventh-day Sabbath not to work toward salvation, but because we are already saved. That's why it's a rest in him. He's already done the work. and We just accept it. That's what the Sabbath is. But the Church of Rome claims that Sunday is the mark of its ecclesiastical or church authority. We saw the connection of the Sabbath with, with Jesus, but the church, uh, the Catholic Church, claims that Sunday is the mark of its authority. Let's see what they say. <coughs> of course, <clears throat> the Catholic Church claims that the change, the change of the days of worship, was her act. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. That's the American Catholic Quarterly Review. The Roman Church claims that the mark of its authority is its right to change the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Now, I want you to, we're going to correct something in just a moment. We go on with another quote, Louis Gaston Segur, in his treatise on the authority of the Catholic Church, uh, dated 1874, says this, Thus the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. Somewhere in my boxes, still packed from moving, I have my own copy of a little tiny Catholic catechism where you can flip to the pages, I have them marked and I have them highlighted, where they ask the question, what is the Sabbath? And the Catholic Catechism will say, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Then they will say, well, then why do we worship on Sunday? And the Catholic Catechism will answer, because the church, using her authority, conferred the day of worship to Sunday. Uh, then someone has, has you know, asked me, well, Pastor Aaron, I've looked at those. Those are copyrighted from the 1950s. Uh, that's old. This date is old. Uh, 1874? That's so old. Church doesn't think that anymore. So, of course, I got out my catechism. I dusted it off. I turned to the copyright page, and I saw that that copyright from the 1950s was correct. It was the 1950s. But then I saw 1975, 1985, 1995, 2005, and then... 2015, the most recent copyright. Once they had to start renewing their copyrights every 10 years, they basically just says, yep, we still believe it. Because every time that copyright is renewed, the church is reaffirming those statements. Uh, so I'm just waiting for 2025 when I will pick up my new copy. And I will look to see if it is still there. And I would be surprised if it is not. So, what vehicle would the devil suggest to unify society? Is it possible? We're just asking the question. Is it possible that the vehicle used to accomplish the goal of world unification will be Sunday worship? 
a common day of worship, promoted as a world day of unity for the good of mankind. Uh, because if you are going to get maybe non-religious people on board, you've got to connect it. Uh, you got to connect it to something that also applies to the non-religious. Maybe it's just for the good of mankind. Well, the stage is being set even now. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth had a think there. Says this, June 6, 2012, the demands of work can't bully people out of needed time off. Uh, can't bully people out of needed time off. Now, someone reading that might go, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm a workaholic. My husband is. My wife is. My parents were. I certainly don't want that for me or my kids. Wouldn't it be great if we weren't bullied by work into never having time off? Sounds good. Sounds good. But he went on to say that Sunday might be, could be. Let's consider if it shall be. No, it must be a day of rest for the Catholic Church. No, for everyone, he says. When he says everyone, my friends, he means it. Here's the reason. So people can be free to be with their families and with God. And if you choose to not be with God that day, at least you get to be with your families. That's a win-win for the religious and the non-religious. And then he takes it one step further. By defending Sunday, one defends human freedom. I like human freedom. Uh, if you take Pope Benedict at his word, then you have to to associate human freedom with the observance of Sunday. Sunday is the day of the Lord and of man, a day which everyone must be able to be free, free for the family and free for God, Pope Benedict says. Make no mistake about it. The day is coming, and I believe it's possibly sooner than we think, um, I, have, I have, I guess, my own personal opinions as to why I think it might be sooner than we think. But I believe sooner than we think, laws will be passed restricting religious liberty. Uh, as a side little parenthetical, the Pope says that Sunday is the day of the Lord and of man. Did we see that? The Bible says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and that the Sabbath was made for man. I would encourage us that we take the Bible as it reads, and that we always test what is said with what is written. Because if we take one man at his word, then we have to throw out these Bible verses. without putting too fine a point on it. Those who conscientiously follow the word of God and keep the true Sabbath of the Lord will be labeled as opposing unity and the good of society. Now, oh, can you imagine? Let's read this quickly. Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption, calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy 
stubbornness, contempt of authority. They will be accused of disaffection toward the government. Sounds fantastical. Can't happen. Certainly not in the United States. A recent quote by a prominent American political spokesperson says this, Again, we see a majority of Americans who disagree. And so when you are not with what majority of Americans are, then you know that is extreme. That is an extreme way of thinking. It's an extreme way of thinking to not just go along with the majority of what Americans are thinking. This should catch our attention because in the United States tradition, we have very clear parameters put in place to protect the minority from the predations of the majority. You should not be labeled extreme if you choose to just not go along. And I would say that this should certainly catch our attention as the word extremist is being used with increasing abandon in our public discourse. It's being thrown around like it's Christmas morning and your kids are playing with the wrapping paper. Everything is an extremist this. And what extremist has come to mean is you don't agree with what we want you to agree with. That's how it's becoming more and more used like. It's almost also always in the context of a threat to our democracy. So if you find yourself in a minority and you aren't going along with the majority, you can today be labeled an extremist and a threat to our democracy. It no longer takes great leaps of the imagination to draw the connection from in the minority, and that would be Sabbath-keeping in this conversation, to a threat to democracy or a way of life, or even freedom for people, as the Pope would say. If you're not a part of all of that, the only thing left, mostly unsaid, is what to do with those that are labeled extreme. Because, of course, you do something with people that are uh, labeled a threat to democracy. So what is the mark of the beast? What is the mark of the beast? While it still seems inconceivable to us today, oh, this is, this is a continuation. I actually do want to con- continue the thought from this last one. It still seems inconceivable to us today that anything like that could threaten us today, except it's not far-fetched. Regardless of how you fall, this is my interpretation of the two years of COVID, generally two years. During COVID, governments around the world forced under penalty of fines and imprisonment the closure of houses of worship around the globe that was a manner of enforced worship. How so? Well, because it was declared you must worship at home or else. That is a manner of enforced worship. It has been demonstrated that governments across the globe need only to declare something an emergency and they will rapidly violate religious liberties in many forms. And it generally works that if if the power can be exercised in the negative sense, stay away, 
Governments also have a track record of enforcing it and do this in the positive sense. Well, they've already flexed one direction, the mark of the beast would suggest flexing the other way. That's all we're saying. So what is the mark of the beast? Well, the beast is the papacy, the Vatican, the Catholic Church. That it is Sunday observance is what it claims as its mark of authority. And that the mark of the beast is enforced observance of Sunday as a sacred day of worship. It's forced. Revelation 13 tells us that under threats and, and penalties and coercion, you, you take it or else. Uh, so that's why it is enforced. Revelation 14.9 says this though, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And it will not be a pretty day for the worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. In other words, God is desperately warning you and I about what will happen to those who ally themselves with the beast and follow after its claim to worship. Those who have rejected the first two angels' warnings, the call to true worship and away from religious confusion, find themselves in danger of being on the receiving end of God's wrath in the judgment. How are God's people to respond to this challenge to God's authority? this challenge to his prescribed means of worship. Well, if worship on Sunday eventually enforced is the mark of the beast, what is the alternative? Is there an alternative? Well, John, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I prayerfully hope each one of us can answer to the affirmative on the first one. How are we doing on the second half? Do you love Jesus today? God's people are always motivated by their love for him. God's people are not motivated out of fear. They are not motivated because if I do this, then God will gift me something. It's not a tit-for-tat kind of exchange in our relationship to him. We are motivated by love. How has Jesus (coughs) said that we can show our love for him? Well, faithfulness is how we can show our love to God. And it brings us to the counter option for the mark of the beast, the seal of God. Revelation 7 verse 2 says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. Seals in ancient times were used to notarize or attest to the authenticity of official documents. I was in school at a time when the archaeology professor at Southern Adventist University, all of a sudden was very excited. And next thing the the school of religion knew, he had basically disappeared for the next day and and change. I thought, what is going on with with our professor? Well, word came through the uh, archaeology grapevine that the seal of Isaiah had been found in an excavation. Well, that is so, so vitally important to a, a biblical 
archaeologist's mind that adds so much evidence extra-biblically to the real existence of the prophet of Isaiah that he basically just took off and started calling people in Israel and doing what he did. It was very exciting to find these seals. Often, the seals that we find are the only pieces of evidence of a person's uh, proof of their existence. Because uh, some things are so old and they've mostly been destroyed. They're very important. Everybody who was anybody had a seal. People designed their seals to be unique, distinctive, and individualized. And they were used this way. And this is, this is not going to be uncommon to us if you ever had anything notarized. If you have a marriage certificate or a birth certificate, we do the same thing today. With the contract or the agreement, there would be a, a bit of a sealing wax. They would press the seal into it as evidence that the document was genuine. To be authentic, a seal must contain at least three elements. We still do this today. The name, the title, and the territory of the individual whose seal it was. And you would see that like Mrs. Jane Doe, uh, County Clerk, Catoosa County on your marriage certificate, something like that, right? We see that. Same three categories. Since the final conflict is over worship and God's authority is revealed in his law, we expect God's seal to be embedded in that law. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says this, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. <laughs> At the heart of God's law, we read the fourth commandment, the one dealing with the Sabbath, which says this in part. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. We see in this commandment the name, the Lord your God. And it doesn't just give his name, he also tells uh, his relationship to you. The Lord your God. The title, the one who made, creator, I made it all. And his territory, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. His territory is as expansive as it gets. Uh, some of the old uh, Napoleons or the old Stalins would be jealous of this kind of territory. God claims everything as his. The Sabbath places us in a special position of worship and loyalty to the Creator. That is why it is singled out as the keystone commandment, the sign or the seal of the covenant. Most of the Ten Commandments are accepted even by secular people as good. Non-religious people look at don't murder and they go, yep. They look at don't steal. They go, yeah, I don't want anyone taking my stuff from my car. You know, they look at don't, don't covet or don't cheat with my spouse. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't do that. We can agree with that. You know, kids, honor your mother and father. And they say, yes, you hear that little Jimmy? Even the non-religious agree with most of the Ten Commandments. Religious people even agree with the other ones. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Don't take 
God's name in vain. They go, yep, yep, yep. All makes sense. This one, though, this is the only one debated over. It's the only one that people go, well, eh, I don't know about that one. I think I, I think I read somewhere that I didn't read it in the book of Acts. People will say that, oh, because I didn't read it in the book of Acts. Well, it's there. It's very obviously there. Uh, or they will say, well, it's not explicitly restated. Or this is the only one that people really try to explain away rather than wondering how can I be faithful towards it like the other nine. That's the better question. Because the Sabbath places us in a special position of worship and loyalty to the Creator. That's why it is this. By observing the Sabbath, God's last day people are placing their seal. They are giving their assent and their agreement to a covenant relationship with God. It is their pledge of loyalty and obedience to the whole law. James says if you stumble in one, you've stumbled in the rest of them. Uh, You can't explain away one and say, I'm doing great, God, how about it? It doesn't work that way according to the Bible. When we observe the Sabbath, we acknowledge our position as subjects of the divine king. Because for an agreement to be valid, both parties have to sign it. Uh, I just recently went through the process of buying my first house. I've only ever rented until now. So many papers. So much. And everyone has to sign it. Me and my wife and the seller and his wife and the attorney is signing things, and our realtors are signing things, and it's about this thick. So many. If one of us didn't sign on that dotted line, we'd have to start all over. Both parties had to sign to it before it could be a valid purchase. So it is with our covenant relationship with God. He's already put his stamp on his part of the bargain. I've made you. I've created time. I've asked you to be with me during that time. I will bless you. I will forgive you. I will will bring you home one day. Now put your name on there. And that's what we're supposed to do with the Sabbath. The prophecy of Revelation 13 tells us that in the last days, during the time of universal crisis, God's people step forward. We don't continue to sit on the bench watching everyone else argue about this or that. We step forward and we place our stamp, our seal, our signature right on the covenant. Not by just saying, yes, please, but by actually keeping the Sabbath. Can't just say, okay, makes sense. You've got to follow through. As I say, put skin in the game. When they do this, it will be God's turn. He steps forward. He puts his seal on it. He guarantees, he guarantees that they are his true followers. It's a beautiful thing. Because God wants the universe to behold in his people the triumph of his grace. He wants to show us off. He wants everyone to know that even in a time of universal apostasy, 
even in the face of a death decree, even under the threatenings of you can't buy and sell, that God will have a people who is loyal to him and they are unwavering. God wants to show you off. God wants people to notice that you are faithful to him. And the ceiling is God's shout of triumph. It's God's trumpet of victory over you. It is his victory banner that waves before the universe. The mark of the beast at its very heart exalts human above the divine. It places man's word above God's word. I even showed a very clear example of man's word violating God's word. Just side by side, just like that. Just like that. The mark of the beast results in replacing the commandments of God with human decrees. And it leads to giving glory to man rather than giving glory to God. It comes down to this climax. Revelation 14 and verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is all building up to something. God's last day message ends with this climax. We are saved by grace. Our hearts are filled with the faith of Jesus. His faith motivates and changes us and inspires and empowers us if we are found in this description. Do you want to be found in that description? God, Jesus' faith frees you from the guilt of your past, delivers you from the bondage of sin, both past and present, and the hope of in the future nevermore. You won't have to worry about it again. You are saved by grace. You can't do anything else but through the power that he, but through his power, you give him your allegiance and you serve and obey him forever. But right now, we are faced with a choice. Of the two options presented in the word of God for showing who your allegiance belongs to, who you love and who you want as Lord in your life, which will you choose? Like this man facing the fork in the road, which way will you turn? Do you want to be counted among the saints of God? Well, turn towards Jesus. Do you want to be sealed with his seal? Choose to keep his Sabbath. Do you desire to avoid religious confusion and following after a coercive institution? Well, leave Babylon. Avoid confusion. Don't go towards man's dictates, but rather towards God's directives. You have a choice today. And today you will face the same challenge put forth by Joshua to Israel of old. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be God or will it be the beast? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the warnings. But not only the warnings, but we thank you for the promise. Because as we turn to you, as we draw closer to you, you have promised to sustain us, to lift us, uh, to bring us all the way through to the end. Lord, I pray that that would be sooner than later. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness towards us, and we pray for the strength to make a decision in 
your favor tonight. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.